the Collective Whisper Podcast with Simon King. Hello and welcome to this week's episode of the Collective Whisper podcast. I am your host, Simon Kay. Welcome to the show, everybody. We hope you're enjoying the show so far. We're getting close to the end of season two and it's been a great season. We've had some amazing guests and we've still a few more to go. So we hope you stay tuned. Please follow, subscribe and press those buttons where you see them. We really appreciate it. So this week we're going to talk to a very special guest. I'd like to welcome today Zoe Houlihan. On the 23rd of July 2018, in the seaside town of Mati in Greece, Zoe Houlihan and her husband of four days were enjoying the beginning of their honeymoon. Then disaster struck. Unprecedented wildfires swept through the area, killing 102 people. Zoe and Brian fled their villa, chased by the flames running for their lives. Ultimately, Zoe was one of the few survivors from the area, having been miraculously rescued from the boot of a burning car just seconds from death. She suffered severe burns all over her face and body, and her beloved husband Brian lost his life before her eyes. In her book, As the Smoke Clears, Zoe reveals the emotional journey of grappling with the loss of her true love and partner, as well as her own incredible fight for survival, learning how to walk, talk, and use her limbs again and a future facing PTSD and a heavily scarred body. As the Smoke Clears is a deeply personal journey through a life-altering year which at its heart teaches us to seek hope, happiness and sometimes even humour in the most tragic of circumstances and to find comfort in the enduring kindness of our fellow human beings. Okay, Zoe Houlihan, welcome to the show. Thank you, Simon. It's, it's lovely to be here. It's lovely talking to you this afternoon. It's great to have you on. We've been trying to get you on for a little bit and you're finally here and it's been worth the wait. So I appreciate you taking the time to come and talk to us. How is everything with you? Everything is good, I have to say. It's it's uh, busy, which, look, I, I love being busy. It's the opposite end of the spectrum that I, I absolutely hate. Uh, recently got over COVID, I'm delighted to say. I'm allowed to mention the C word, am I? Or does everyone just uh, squeal as soon as you say that word these days? Um, so I'm happy to say I got I got through that rather unscathed, and uh, yeah, just back back doing what I like doing the best, writing and, and talks and things like that, and and clearly talking to you today. Brilliant! It's great chatting to you, and just you know, since you're mentioning COVID there. Because obviously you're receiving some treatments and you've had, you know, you've had hospital visits. Is COVID kind of a bit more risky for you? Yeah, well, I mean, I was absolutely terrified of catching it, in all honesty. Um, I'm very lucky. I get some rather marvelous medical treatments, as you know, and and, uh, assistance. And I had just literally received my second booster. So I was ahead of the game, so to speak, uh, when I caught it. So... Um, yeah, it wasn't pleasant, I'll be honest with you, as I'm sure anybody listening will, will agree, the majority of well, which will agree. Um, lost my taste, lost my sense of smell for about two weeks, or a little bit over two weeks. Did manage to lose a few pounds, though, into the mix, so we, <laughs> there's, the, there's the silver lining, but... But the, the, I know that's always such a woman's thing to say. But the, 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 I think the important thing to note here really is this is the COVID <laughs> diet. But the important thing to note here is that I have been really, really scared because I did have a lot of lung damage on my, uh, from the fire, and uh, you know I, I was terrified of catching this. I feel blessed that I caught it late in the day when I had double vaccine and a double booster under my belt. So I feel very uh, lucky to be living in a country where we can get access to those so easily. So uh, yeah, I'm fine. 
virtually as as fighting fit as I'm going to get. Let's put it that way. I'm glad you got over it okay and that's the problem, isn't it? As you said, you can have sometimes complications and you hear people having long COVID and especially for you, if you had previous lung damage, I mean, long COVID wouldn't really have gone too well with that. It would have been a bad mixture. So I'm glad you got over it and I'm glad you got through it. Okay. And, uh, you know, at least you're fighting fit again for other treatments that you may have coming up. Yeah, I, I, I find that the fact that I've just used the term fighting fit highly ironic for me, <laughs> but I'm as fighting fit as, as I can be. Let's put it that way. But look, yes, I've, as I said, I, I got through it. I got through it relatively unscathed. So, you know, that's, that's I see obviously there in your LinkedIn profile and see and see on your media kind of obligations and everything you're very busy and you seem to be doing a lot of public speaking and a lot of events so is it something now after the pandemic that things have really you know heated up for you and you're really busy on the circuit yeah well yes i mean all of a sudden everything seems it's like you know the 46a bus you wait forever and then they all come in you know in a row um yeah things things are really beautifully picking up i would say um from the from the motivational talks side of things, I'm I'm very much enjoying partaking in those. I have been doing those throughout the pandemic, but of course we've been hiding away behind the screen in that little cyberspace world. So it's a very different experience. For instance, I, I recently gave a talk in Croke Park in front of several hundred people. Slightly knee wobbling moment. I'm gonna be honest with you, it was mildly terrifying standing up on that stage um in front of so many people. Because it was effectively the first real live event, even though I was so used to doing them in front of camera, there's, a, as you know, a different experience when you're, when you're live on stage. But really, really wonderful to, to be back interacting with real human beings. You know, as you said it there, it doesn't matter how many times you speak on camera or, you know, off camera or on stage. But when you have big crowds like that, it can be pretty daunting and people still get stage fright after years and years of doing it. So how do you do you have like a special technique to help you kind of calm yourself before you go on or how do you center yourself? Oh, gosh, how do I center myself? Um, I usually find a fixed spot in the room and I stare at that for a couple of seconds. Uh, to be honest with you, the, 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 right. you know, the fear wouldn't really overtake me, but yeah, I just, I had a second of, oh gosh, this is very different to sitting at home in front of your screen. Let's put, let's put it that way. But I, I shook that off fairly quickly. And, and, you know, given the fact that one of the topics I was discussing was uh, trying to uh, encourage people to embrace their fears, to overcome the things that are holding them back. Um, I found that in my head quite ironic considering I, I was momentarily a little bit anxious standing up there. So, you know, practice what you preach, girl, and just get on with it. So that's that that's my little inner mantra, just get on with it. <laughs> you know, what's the worst that can happen? <laughs> but like you said there, you were practicing what you were preaching because you were up there and you were doing it. And I always say that's a, a motto I always have is that, you know, face your fears and I always think we all have these fears and little fears and big fears that sometimes change the direction of our lives. And there can be something simple like, you know, afraid of the dark. And I always think you have to sometimes just sit in the dark, sleep in the dark and try and get over it because it it doesn't matter if it's the school bully or it doesn't matter if it's the dog down the street. 
you know, you have to just kind of say, no, I'm not going to back away from this. I have to find a way around it or, you know, do it a different way, but face it in some kind of way, don't you? Absolutely. And I mean, there's a great power in engaging with your fears. You know, when you overcome something that's been holding you back for a considerable period of time, it, it's it's a very empowering feeling. Um, I'm a silly one. So uh, I force myself every single day to cross over the railway bridge in my village. Now, I hate bridges. I'm actually terrified of bridges. So every day I force myself to go over the bridge. Now, this is only a very minor fear in the greater scheme of things. But to me, it's it's kind of proving that I can do it for myself. And there's always this little sense of accomplishment on the other side. I'm still a bit of a chicken. You know, I hold my breath most of the time as I'm crossing over it. But nonetheless, I make myself do it every day. And, and like I said, you know, you do, you do feel you're regaining a little bit of control in life by doing these things. So I'm, I'm very much one of those people, particularly, I suppose, in this, what I call my second half of life. You know, I feel that my life now is so dramatically different to my life a few years ago, um, where my worst fears were actually realized. And it, it changes your mindset on pretty much everything you encounter right, right. from there on out. So even the silly thing like crossing the bridge, to me, I kind of force myself to do it on a daily basis. Um, and that would be, the, you know, the, the least of them, I suppose. But yeah, I, I, I genuinely believe there is a power in in trying to overcome things that make you afraid yes and you know the great thing about that is by you crossing that bridge and you know as you said you know you feel like a chicken but you know i suppose the most important is don't play chicken with the train so get across that bridge <laughs> and then when you're across there you do feel better. But they, but, <laughs> Julie <Nelson's>, Julie <laughs> but you know when you're across that's when you have that empowerment. But of course, the next day you have to face it again. And for some people, the fear is as strong. For other people, it's a little less. So we all deal with these fears differently. And I mean, it's a great exercise. You know, people should do more of those kind of things. Just find that one thing they're scared of, whether it's public speaking, whether it's, you know, uh, driving a car, whether it's there's so many things we can be afraid of that we avoid, isn't there? Absolutely. And, you know, look, let's be honest, we're, we're coming out, you know, the tail end. It's not quite done yet, but we're coming out of the tail end of this pandemic. And I think what's been rather interesting over the last couple of years is that people that I always assumed were the most self-assured, were the strongest, have possibly for the first time in their lives that have had to deal with anxiety. Um, and I, I found this quite fascinating because the strongest, what is it they say, the mightiest tree falls the hardest. You know, I, I found it quite surprising, that, you know, how much uh, anxiety has affected certain individuals. Um, the only way to overcome that is to talk it through, in my opinion. And sometimes you need to go to an expert. Sometimes if you're lucky enough to have, you know, an understanding partner or a friend or a family member around you, you, you can talk it out with them. But um I think I think basically uh, anxiety has has hit us all in a very different fashion over the last couple of years, and it is a topic that I'm interested in kind of delving into um, during these talks because I think it's something that resonates with a lot of people. Whereas it may not have done so. You and I were having this conversation three years ago. Right. Exactly. I understand. Yeah. But you know, from what happened to you. And to where you are now is, you know, it's an incredible achievement and you, you've come such a long way. And, 
it's that kind of daily battle, isn't it? For And of course, for you having to relive things and to go over things. But then that bravery you have to go on stage or to address people and talk about these things over and over and put them in different ways so they don't, it doesn't, you know, bore you to hear the same story every day. But you can't get away from obviously the real story and what happened. So for you, does there come a point when you're talking where you say, okay, I, I, ha- I have a routine. I can do it for a few days, but then I need a break. Or how, how do you manage dealing with the, the, the pressure of speaking about the event? Yes, absolutely. There, there, there comes a point when I have to step away. And, and I can do it in the most cowardly fashion, hide under the duvet, which I've been known to do for a day or two. Or I can just step out of that, that part of my life for, you know, for a few hours. But, um, I mean, it still catches me unawares sometimes. You know, recently I, I was uh, doing a talk with a smaller group of people and I was just talking about Brown. And I, I had a copy of my book by my side and there's Brown's beautiful face on the cover. And it just caught me unawares. I was talking about him. I was talking about him in very jovial, warm terms. It's all his face. It's our wedding day. And literally, I could just feel the catch in the throat and the tear threatened, you know, behind the eye. And I kind of went, God, uh, pull yourself together. Um, so, it, it, yeah, uh, it's, you know, it's never easy. It's easier because it's four years this month down the line. But it's never, it's never an easy thing to talk about. You know, um, and unfortunately for me, at the current stage where I'm at, because obviously I'm, I'm writing in the newspaper and I'm giving talks, etc. You know, where I'm at, um, and the, I suppose if you want to call it the job I'm doing right now, its origins are from the tragedy that occurred on the 23rd of July 2018. Believe you me, I'm only too well aware of that. And unfortunately, in order to for people to understand where I want to go to, I have to go back to those origins. I don't have to overly focus on them for, say, an entire talk. But, you know, it, it gives context to the current topics that I am discussing. Of course. Um, and, and otherwise, people wouldn't know why the hell I'm here talking about them. Talking about them. Yeah, well, I think that's it because, you know, we see so many people in the public kind of arena talking about events and tragedies that have changed their lives. And of course, you know, it doesn't matter who it is, you know, you know, I've had some guests here talk about suicide and family loss and all these different things. And some people can be critics and say, oh, well, you know, they're looking for the attention and doing this. But it's not like that. There's lots of people who have lost people and will never talk about it. They're maybe helping themselves, but they can't get that inner strength to help other people. But the people who can talk about it, they are there helping other people deal with this grief and they're helping other people manage the grief and they're helping other people deal with their anxieties and their fears. You you know, you can't do good things in this world without somebody hating you for it. So the, the thing to do is just do it and forget the begrudgers and forget the critics because there might be two people you're bothering by that, but there could be 10,000 people that you're helping. So you just have to keep going and push on, don't you? Uh, absolutely. And, and I mean, you're so right. There's always going to be somebody that will object, object to your choice of action, you know, and I'm my own biggest critic anyway. So, you know, they can't say anything to me that I probably didn't say to myself in the darkest hour in the early hours of the morning. Um, but yeah, I mean, when, when, when people, but when people are trying to, to talk about these, these things, grief, 
bereavement, um, severe illness, tragedy. You know, often, well, in my own case, I find that uh, maybe I'm performing self-therapy here, or maybe I'm just trying to make sense, of, or maybe it's a process where it's a, it's a hard thing to say, you know, I'm looking for the good in this. I, I mean, I, I it's a very difficult uh, thing to, to come up with, you know, that any good could have come from that date. Uh, but... <laughs> I don't know. Um, yeah, as you can tell now, even as I'm saying this, I'm trying to make sense of it myself. Look, I, you know, I could either choose to stay in the darkness and uh, let it erode and eventually do me in, or I can choose to take a look at the greater experience thereafter, which I did, and see the amazing gifts that I was given in the process of recovery, which is an ongoing process even now, four years on, and take the good from that. You know what I mean? I'm not saying that I'm taking good from July the 23rd. I'm taking good from everything that happened from that date to today. And obviously, we're in July at the moment. I'm very conscious that this is, I'm tip, I'm tiptoeing on eggshell time because, you know, in a couple of weeks' time, my wedding anniversary will come up. And then four days later, Brian's death anniversary will come up. So it's, 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 it's a time when I'm thinking about this stuff and dreaming about it constantly. Yeah, and that this date, you know, you, even just looking at it on paper, seeing that date there, for you, it must be hugely significant because I'm sure for you, even, you know, four years later or whatever, you're, you, you can't help but like counting down these days. And there's all these important dates that come after, as you said, you know, your wedding day, your the, the day of the, the event happened, Brian's death and then later your dad's death and everything. So there's a lot of really important and, you know, very tragic dates within this month or so. And it's a really hard time for you. And, and I can imagine there are moments like that when you want to go and hide under the duvet. But, you know, you know, fair play to you. You are facing them and, and you're doing it time and time again. And I can imagine the amount of people you're helping and you're influencing and you're encouraging to to get on with their lives and to get over it is amazing. Well, I, I really, really hope so. Uh, the, the very first talk I gave was for um, Bereavement Foundation, the Hospice Foundation. Uh, and it was just concerning what I described as the insanity of grief. I mean, I know Dr. Cooper Ross said there were five stages of grief, which is absolute nonsense because there are about 555 stages of grief. Um, but the reason I chose or agreed, but it is true, it is true. I mean, there's, yes. you know, there's no rhyme or reason to how any individual, because we're all individuals, so we will do this individually in our own way. Everybody has different things, different ways. Absolutely. And the thing that I found fascinating and the reason I, I agreed to do that talk, and this was probably my very first um, talk of consequence, was because of the volume the astonishing volume of people from all over the country and the UK as well, but the majority would be based in Ireland, um, who responded to the book. And they wrote to me and they DM'd and they uh, emailed me. And it was, at some stage actually, it became quite overwhelming, the volume, because I wanted to respond to everybody. But I realised that people actually want to talk about grief. They want to talk about the stages. They want to talk about the anniversaries. They want to talk about the guilty feeling for the first time that you laugh. Um, they want to talk about how to remember and honor the legacy of the person that they've lost. And 
what really surprised me, in fact, was um, the varying age group, and and, and you know, there, there was it, it, it's it grief. Unfortunately, it's like taxes. You know, it's going to touch everybody at some stage or other. You know, and and I, I found that the, the the type of people who were opening up and contacting me, there's one man in particular. He's he's uh, he lives in a rural community. I would hazard a guess that he might be, you know, a little bit older than me, but you know, possibly maybe. 10 years old or maybe in his 50s or early 60s. And his wife passed very suddenly in the early stages of, of COVID. And he was so isolated. And he had children, but he didn't want to burden them with his grief. And all he wanted to simply do was talk, speak his wife's name and talk about it. So we started to communicate on a Facebook message and this conversation went on for a certain period of time. And I was very concerned about this man because he didn't seem to have any outlet. And then I started to wonder, well, how many other people are like this? And, and to be honest with you, that's when I really started to look at these talks and see, well, maybe this is what you can do, Chloe. Maybe there's something good you can do here. But if I can talk, because for me, talking about Brian and talking about my father, Colin, helped me, helped me process the pain. And it also helped me remember them and honour them. But I'm not unique. I'm not special. Everybody probably feels the same way about the person that they love that they've lost. So uh, there's power. There's power in conversation. Death kind of has been treated like one of the last taboos in Ireland, I feel. You know, people feel guilty about talking about it. Less so now, by the way, post-pandemic, which is interesting. I mean, you know, that this has been freed up a little bit. It's, it's become more regular. Um, you know, People are, are beginning to talk about the process of, of bereavement more frequently with less embarrassment. Let's put it that way. But it's certainly something that I, I think, um, as I said, everyone is going to experience at some stage or other in life, unfortunately. So isn't it, isn't it a good thing if we open up that conversation a little more? It's one of the things I think with the new generation are also influencing, you know, the middle aged and the older generation to speak up about these things because, you know, for too long people have held in the grief and, you know, it's been a very kind of conservative and traditional thing. You know, we don't talk about it so much. And, you know, especially in Ireland, death, sometimes people would laugh about things more than actually speak the truth about it. So, you know, we have a very dark humor and we make fun of dark situations to get over the grief for jokes to ourselves, but jokes even at funerals and everything. But it's the grieving process after all of that that we have to learn to get better at, isn't it? And it's whether it's losing a child or a husband or father or mother, we all have to find ways. And now, I mean, there's so many public forums and so many great public speakers like yourself and so many great podcasts and so many great articles and books. It's a little easier for people to find something because maybe they don't know who to reach out to. But now they can say, well, hold on, I'm going to read this. Okay, there's uh, some advice there. So I think it's opened many doors for people with that grief to be able to find an outlet for it. I would sincerely hope so. I mean, I certainly know there are lots of forums out there and there are lots of helplines. And, you know, sometimes it can be just with the, with the gentleman that I referred to a moment ago. Um, I eventually persuaded him to go talk to his GP um, because, you know, I was actually seriously worried about him at that stage. 
Um, the other thing about the Irish community in particular, I think we're fiercely superstitious. So I think we think, certainly I'm going to include my own family in this. I think we think we, if we say it, it's going to happen. So yeah, if we yeah, don't yeah. mention the yeah. D word, you know, we're going to dodge that bullet for as long as possible. Um, so yeah, I, I think that, uh, and you're absolutely right. We have this thing where it's like, oh, well, don't speak of the dead or, you know, always speak well and always, um, you know, don't invite death to your door. But I think, as you said, death doesn't occur because we talk about it. Death happens for other reasons and that superstition can really hold people back. But when people die because of accidents or illness or old age, it's just something that's coming and we can't avoid it. But we can't talk about it before. And now you have these death doulas or doulas. I'm not sure the pronunciation. You have people that talk about death and help people to die. So you see, we've come a long way, haven't we? I think so. And I, I think you made a very good point earlier as well when you said that it's post-funeral. You know, it's post-wake period that, 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 you know, we're working on. We're getting better at it. Uh, because, you know, all of that, oh God, my heart broke for people during the pandemic that had no clue around them when they were burying or you know, saying goodbye to someone they love. And we all sat through, I know I sat through at least half a dozen funerals myself sitting on the other end of the computer, you know, and watching an empty, an empty church or an empty crematorium uh, where maybe at maximum half a dozen people would be dispersed in, in the congregation. Um, because part of the grieving process is community. It is getting that support from people around you. So, you know, I mean, that, that was absolutely devastating to witness. Um, but after the period of time, as you say, after the, as you said, after the funeral is when really the talking needs to begin. Or it's just a case of not ignoring it, not pretending that this hasn't happened to, you know, your your friend or your colleague and, and recognizing that they may be going through a difficult time or recognizing maybe they need a distraction, you know, but it's it's just, I, I don't want to become the death girl either. I don't want to become obsessed with the topic, but I do think that there's positivity, you know, oh, no. <laughs> but there is positivity <laughs> being able to include it in a, in a conversation. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I don't. I don't wear that badge with pride. Death. You'll be. You'll be the new Irish superhero. <laughs> I can't imagine what. Mind you, I do wear a copious amount of black, so I probably have the outfit ready to go. <laughs> well, you know, if they approach you from Netflix about doing the TV show and they give you that title set, no, 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 I've been avoiding this issue. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think we can save that. So Zoe, let's um let's go back before the event obviously what happened in Greece a little just a little bit. And you know, in your career, before the event in Greece, you were working in, in newspapers in advertising. And in the build up to you getting married and you know going on honeymoon, was that a, a big process and, and was it something that you had been planning for such a long time, or was it something that you kind of put together very quickly and said, Oh, let's go to Greece? Tell us what happened that way. Well, I mean, it, this was my second marriage, and it was also Brian's second marriage. I mean, we weren't, you know, little cherubic kids by the time we rocked up the aisle, so we were both in our early 40s at that stage. So, um, you know, I didn't want the, the mammoth uh, white wedding, but as it turned out, it was, it was a, a magnificent day, a magnificent event. Like anybody else, you know, there are stresses in the run-up to weddings. Um, they never go easy. 
Um, for me, I suppose one of the, the, the main things that concerned me was my father's health, even though in the back of my head, in a very immature sense, I always thought my dad was in war. Um, so it never really occurred to me, no matter how ill he was with cancer, that he was actually going to pass away. And that sounds moronic, given the topic that we've just been talking about. But uh, I really thought that he would, would beat this thing. Uh, and sadly, he, you know, sadly, eventually he got the better of me for the better, for, for a variety of reasons. Um, so that was, you know, that was, that was worrying in the run-up to the wedding. But Brian and I, we were a cracking team, you know. We did everything together. Um, and this was novel, you know. He's the first partner in my life that I really felt that we worked together in everything. We always had a common goal. And so the wedding was planned together and, and every little step of that journey, uh, including looking after my dad, we did together in advance of that date. So we were very excited and it was a huge event. We had about, about 80 people, 80 guests on the day. Look, I was just, you know, I just couldn't wait to marry him. I was absolutely crackers in love. So, um, yeah, it was, it was on this stunning day an absolutely beautiful day, which, as you know, you cannot take for granted in Ireland, even in the middle of July. Um, but it was, yeah, the sun, no, the sun was no. splitting the stones that day. So, uh, yeah. It can be hard to talk about, you know. Of course, of course. And Sorry, but I, I, yeah, because it was such a happy day. <laughs> no, I understand. I, but I, I think, you know, for those things, even though they're hard to talk about, it's nice as well to look back on and have that good memory of such a wonderful day. You know, so so for you, I imagine there's moments that you don't want to think about and then other moments are emotional and hard to think of. But it's nice to have those good memories in there too, you know, those m amazing days and, and you know, you spent with Brian. And can I ask you, with um, you know, with going to Greece, uh, is it somewhere? Had you ever been there before, or you know, was it your first time there? And was it a completely different kind of feel for you? You had never experienced it that before, or had you been there many times? Well, I've been there when I was young. Uh, I was there on a girls' holiday, I think, probably in my early twenties. And I, 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 I've been back to Santorini as well in, in later years, but uh, no, it's been, I haven't been on the mainland, if you want to go with that. Um, so I studied, <laughs> I, use, I use the term loosely, I studied Greek civilization in college, um, but please don't quiz me on anything regarding that because the, the memory is a little shocked. No, don't worry. Um, <laughs> so, my area of expertise. <laughs> <laughs> good, uh, good. I, I'm relieved of that. But um, no, I really wanted to go to Greece. I really wanted to go to Greece, and I, you know, I wanted to do a little bit of island hopping, but I also wanted to see some of the landmarks and the ruins. And to be honest with you, you know, that caused me a huge amount of pain thereafter because I was the one who convinced Brian to go to Greece. He actually didn't want to go there in the middle of the summer. He claimed it would, okay. it would be too hot. But um, I used used my feminine wiles of persuasion, and lo and behold, we ended up going there. And I, I will, I will be very honest here. It took me an awful lot of therapy thereafter to let go of some, if not all, but some of that survivor's guilt. Because, you know, had I not chosen this spot, we'd probably still be here today. But you know, that's that's the way the dice rolled, unfortunately. 
that's something with death and grief that comes along with it because whether it's a car crash where you survive and somebody doesn't and maybe you made the decision to drive or you said, let's go this way. And I think that happens in lots of situations that somebody makes a decision a decision, and then because of that decision, you know, a car, uh, they're just on that path. They don't cause the events to happen, but they're just in that wrong place at the wrong time. But for them, they have this kind of feeling that, oh, it's because of me and it's not. It never is and it never will be, but it's just they, they feel like, well, I'm the only one here. I survived. They lost their lives. So it, it's even worse for you then, isn't it? Well, I mean, I had tremendous difficulty with the fact for a considerable period of time that I was the survivor and he wasn't. You know, Brian was always the strong one. I mean, uh, you know, he was, he was the leader. And even on the, on the day as we're running for our lives, you know, I was relying on him and he promised that you know we would make it and as soon as Brian promised something it usually would be so you know so uh, yeah it, 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 I, I, it, you know in any kind of traumatic event like this yes it's, it's going to take a long time to work it out look there's no rhyme or reason on it 102 people were killed that day and thousands of people like me were either severely injured or lost their homes, or their livelihoods, or their cars, and their cars on in the greater scheme of things aren't a big deal. But really, I mean, this was just Dante's Inferno, the pit of hell, um, on that particular date. And you know, I, I, I know I lost Brian, but I know so many other people suffered tremendously too. I'm not suggesting there's a comfort in that, but it does help you kind of take out the why me, or why only me. Because it's not Wyoming. It's not Wyoming. Lots of people have, have experienced tragedy down through the years. And yeah, you just have to accept that and try and move forward. And that's what, that's what I've been doing for the last few years. Yeah, and of course, because as you said, it's it's not why me. It's and it's not only you, as you said. There's for all of those 102 people, there are many survivors who could have perished, but they didn't. So the great thing is that you can find some relief in the fact that it's not just you having this, you know, survivor guilt syndrome. It's them as well, and it's something I think that's part of the grieving process. Whether whether it's your grandfather just passing away and you didn't get a chance to say goodbye to them or whether it's you being involved in something that you felt, okay, you know, if we had done that or if we hadn't done that, things would have been different. So I, I think it's all part of the process and you can't escape it in any way. I agree. And in fact, it's interesting you should say that, you know, I recently had a conversation with somebody I used to work with who, who lost his father and tried desperately to get there. And didn't get there on time, you know, and he was feeling guilty about this. And, you know, I could, <laughs> I was trying to explain to him that, you know, this was just, like I said, the role of dice, and he can't carry that guilt. And his father knew he loved him very much. But, um, yeah, it takes a while to get that, you know, that, that mind thought uh, process. It, it takes a while to work that stuff out. Thankfully, I had a rather marvellous therapist who worked with me consistently for two years. I'm not really sure I'd be here doing what I'm doing today if I hadn't had all of that help, you know, so um, and she, she certainly helped me um, through that. 
And that's good. I mean, it's great that these people can help you and have helped you, you know. To talk about the event, I don't want to go into too much detail and we'll, we'll treat it very sensitively. But on that day it happened, what was kind of the first indications that something was wrong for you? You know, were you asleep? What kind of triggered that, you know, fight or flight thing with you? When did you know something was wrong? Well, we knew something was wrong when the two of us were standing at the bottom of the stairs in the villa looking out on the garden on fire. We knew something was wrong very late in the day. So um, it was a scorcher of the day on the 23rd. I believe it was up to quite early in the day, 40s. Um, we had lunch out in the garden, swimming. And, you know, we've got to bear in mind just four days after we were married. So we were, you know, in the honeymoon zone. And we were having a good old gossip about all sorts of shenanigans and antics that happened after we went to bed on the night of the, of the, of the wedding. Um, so we were in, you know, marvellous form and we had a siesta, as you do. And when we woke up, and, you know, I can't even give you an accurate timeline on this because I cannot describe to you the confusion of a situation like that where Brian was awake before me and I was woken up by him calling me from the bottom of the stairs to come down and I knew by the tone, the urgent tone, there was no dilly dallying. And uh, I know I've said this before, but I remember it's kind of ironic and very interesting things. They're in, in the middle we were staying and it had a very sort of uh, long, angular, sharp wooden staircase. And I remember thinking, for God's sake, so we don't slip and fall. Now, the last thing you need is a broken limb on your honeymoon that will ruin everything. So I remember even though he was calling me to get down, I was sort of tentative coming down these wooden steps. And when I got downstairs, the patio doors were wide open at the side of the house and the whole garden, the whole side of the garden, the, um, the fence and the, the, the greenery were on fire. And I'm talking red, roaring, vivid flames of fire. There's nothing smoldering here. So basically, uh, and the heat was phenomenal, like the heat just threw you back. Um, I've never experienced, nor do I hope to ever experience heat like that again. Um, without, without going into too much detail on, on, on what happened, you know, thereafter, we got out as quickly as we could. It felt like hours, but it was probably less than a minute or two. I had to run upstairs, get dressed, grab passports. Uh, funny that I remember the passports. Um, threw them in my handbag or wallets and that was it and we were at the front door but of course as you may be aware um, I certainly mentioned in detail in the book the electricity we had been shut off so our access or our you know our escape route yeah our escape route was basically blocked so we were in uh, it was a gated uh, community a gated villa so basically <laughs> the gates were about Nine feet tall, but I had to the gates and the book, you couldn't open the gates. We struggled for a period of time trying to land the wind. Um, and by the time we realised we weren't going to be able to escape by car, the car was already surrounded by flames anyway. So we had to move and we had to escape by foot. And we scrambled over the gates. Um, I dislocated my knee on landing, which was unfortunate, but to be honest with you, the adrenaline is pumping so hard through your body at that stage that I knew I was running on a wobbly leg. <laughs> I 
doesn't really register. Pain doesn't really register. It certainly didn't at that set. And we just ran. We ran for our lives. And we ran in all different directions. Um, and we bumped into some people who disappeared into the smoke. Um, and at one stage, the grass that was growing along the grass caught fire and um, Brian put out the things with his bare hands. And uh, I knew then this was not going well. And uh, as you know, eventually we ended up encountering a car. Well, before we encountered the car on the road, let, let me explain to you that in this kind of inferno, it's like you're running in this tornado of fire, is the only way of describing it. So you can't see because your eyes are burning. You can't breathe because it's like swallowing acid with every single breath. Um, I was badly burnt on my legs at this stage and, and, and my arms and eventually my hair and went on fire too. So um, there was this huge flame spraying everywhere. And you, the, the, you can't describe the level of confusion because in fact, I only discovered several years later when I went back to Greece that we'd run in, in fairly a neat circle and ended up virtually across the road from where we started off. Um, but we encountered, a, we encountered a small group of children, uh, babies, uh, one of us in an attic, and uh, they just popped out of the ether. They were like little phantoms, so we, we didn't know where they come from, but we lifted them up in our arms anyway, and almost simultaneously this car emerged out of the smoke, and we stopped the car, and they opened the back door and we managed to shovel the children in the back and then we realized with three adults in this small car and now five children there was no room for us and this was the only way we were going to escape so we begged them to open the boot they opened the boot we climbed in and off we went but as you know that didn't well. the car crashed yeah i won't go into the, 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 the <laughs> No, no, no. I, I just to take your time. I, I just don't. I don't want to push you on anything. Yeah, and you know, after the car crashed and and what happened, then you know, one thing I keep going back to in my mind is that even though all those bad things happened and all, the one thing was your savior coming through the smoke. That that when you thought it was over for you, there was someone there for you. It was like your guardian angel in a sense. So. In that moment, did you think it was the end for you? And, and did that feel like forever? There was part of me that wanted the end to come. I can't, I can't explain to you, first of all, witnessing the man that you love die right in front of your eye. Okay. And then I was on fire. I mean, I was physically on fire. So my clothes were burning. My hair had sort of melted into my face. My hand had become one with the boot of the car. So, um, you know, death would have been a blessing in that moment. And... I just waited. I waited for it to arrive. Um, but instead of death arriving, uh, Nana Saliagas, who's the, the, the volunteer firefighter, uh, lifted me from the boot of the car. He thought I was dead initially. I only found this out when we had a conversation um, a considerable period of time after, after the event on Facebook. Of all things. But uh, he explained that. Um, 
I looked dead and I was covered by the embers of this burning tree and I was so still, but I blinked my right eye. And that's when uh, he realized I was still alive. So he looked me to safety. And I can remember, I can remember that moment very vividly being carried through wall after wall of fire by this, you know, big man in a fire suit. Uh, it was almost like a spectre carrying me. And um, yeah, carried me, carried me to safety. He saved my life. Um, and it was nothing short of a miracle. You know, and I mean, here's the, the unfair, really unfair part of all this, you know. It's wonderful. The children all survived unharmed. Three adults in the car survived unharmed. I was rescued. I sure as hell wasn't unharmed. I was very severely burned. But the, the man, you know, the man who carried those kids to safety, the man who spent most of his adult life dedicated to helping other people in the charity work that he voluntarily did, you know, he's the one who was killed in that moment. And I just, I couldn't accept the unfairness of that fact. So, you know, in the days that followed the fire, I just decided to rewrite history and delete that fact. So I, I rewrote the events in my head and I, I decided that if I'd been rescued from Shirley, there's a possibility Brian had been rescued too, even though I couldn't accept. So I started to imagine that, yeah, potentially Brian had his own maps who carried him to as we all know, sadly, that's not. At that time, I suppose it helped you deal with that sudden loss. And I can imagine in those moments, you have all of these emotions. And when you're in your hospital bed, you have guilt, you have blame, you have this survivor guilt syndrome. You, you have so many things going on. And as you said, you look at Brian gave everything and he helps all those and he'd given everything in his life before. So it can feel really unfair. But I suppose that's the great thing about people who are heroes. They give everything till the end. And that's what he did. So you should be proud of that, too, that he did all he could, as much as he could for everybody. And his actions, in turn, then saved your life. Well, yes. And, and also, you know, in those even in those very early days when I didn't know if I was going to survive. You know, I mean, I was severely burned all over my face. My face was very badly disfigured, my chest, my arms, my hand basically eroded to nothing and my legs. So, you know, um, I was pretty much immediately brought into surgery and I had dozens and dozens of surgeries to try and just basically save my life. And as you know, again, further down the line, I went through sepsis and all this, which mm -hmm. is unfortunate. Uh, <laughs> but even at this very early stage, I kind of made a vow, you know, that I would honor Brian's legacy. You know, I would make sure that the world didn't forget him. You know, and, and look, I spent an awful long time in hospitals, you know, two hospitals, the first in the terror and reason eventually back in, in St. James's Dublin. And as soon as I got out, which was many, many months down the line, um, when I could hardly walk still, I had to learn how to walk and talk and breathe or, you know, basically use, discover all my life skills from scratch, almost. But this this driving force was was within me to to explain everything that had happened and to to write about that. And to, and also to write about my father who passed away three, three weeks after the fire. And I knew that that was some way that I could, could honor them. Um, and it's funny because it is one of the earliest thoughts. Once I once I came across undisputed proof that Brian had indeed died, 
It was in that moment that I started writing the book in my head. While I was lying in hospital, bandaged from head to toe, and not even able to move so much as my head from left to right. That's, that's how badly that was. But I was starting to write his story and the story there and then. Um, so I knew there would be a way that I would keep his memory alive, and that was extremely important to me. And as I said to you earlier, as hard as it is, and it can be at times, when I'm giving talks and I'm mentioning Brian, in doing so, it's still, there's a bitter sweetness to this because I get to show his face on a big screen and I get to say what an amazing man he was. And, you know, often to a bunch of several hundred total strangers. And somebody always comes up to me, by the way, at the end of these talks to say, I knew Brian, wait until I tell you what he did for me. Or I went to college with Brian and he helped me study. Or, you know, I know I worked with him. On oh, that's nice. Or, you know, so there's always a little bit of a reward for me when I talk about him because he, he touched so many different people's lives in the best way possible. Yes, of course. I imagine, obviously, after all the ordeal and you came back by air ambulance to, to Ireland and you had many months of treatments and therapies and everything. You know, one point there, I, I you know, from your book, obviously, that when you compare yourself to Sisyphus, where you, th that kind of survivor thing as well, where... You feel like you cheated death and you shouldn't have. And now you're going to have this punishment of dealing with it. So even where you had your physical pain, you get over these things, but then you'd have the psychological pain. So it's a very hard thing to balance because as you're in your hospital bed or in your rehab room and you're dealing with the physical pains, you have all of this mental anguish going on in your head as well. So it's a very hard situation to say, well, I'm going to deal with this pain first and then deal with the other, or I have to deal with them together. How did you get through that process? Well, I think the majority of my energy was spent on physical renewal in the first few months. You know, because when you are, remember, I ended up after I contracted uh, this rare form of sepsis called toxic epidemic necrolysis and that the symptoms of that started to appear on that plane when I was coming home from Greece. And then I ended up in a coma. I had multiple organ failure. You know, I had to give, be given a tracheostomy to keep me breathing. Renal failure, dialysis, the whole kit and caboodle. Basically, everything started to go wrong. And my family were told not to expect to, for me to survive. And this was quite shocking. This was a month after the fire when I'd been communicating with the senior members of my family and close friends. So when I awoke from the coma, that's when, you know, my own personal physical fact began. And I realized that if I didn't put everything into learning how to walk and talk and actually breathe properly for myself and use my hand, you know, all of these things, about, you know, I had to really put so much effort into those. Now, there's a joy in that in a very weird way, because when you put all your focus onto your physical, Health, you can joyfully ignore all the mental anguish. So it's like I shoveled all my grief and my heartbreak and my PTSD and everything else that was secretly going on in my brain. I shoveled it all into you know this little box, locked that box, and 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 just kept putting everything into um, my physical health. But what happens is when I eventually left the hospital, um, it was in the winter of 2018 that I had no choice then. I was at home. I was alone. And even though I was still going in and out of hospital about four days a week, and I was still doing all of my various physiotherapies and occupational therapies, etc., etc., I had no choice but then to have to address 
the mental anguish. And I've, I've described it in my, my, my talks as a, a ticking time bomb of grief that just exploded. It just exploded. And I didn't want to be here anymore. After all the work I put in to walk and, you know, use my hands and everything that I had done, all that, all that toil, that Sisyphean journey up the hill, um, I, I gave up because I realized that the grief and the, the post-traumatic stress disorder, which was, by the way, absolutely horrific. I mean, I can't describe to you how realistic those flashbacks were. So in one minute, you're, you know, heartbroken because the love of your life was killed right in front of you. And then your dad, who was my best pal and my advocate, I mean, he and I were so close. He's gone too. Uh, so the two people I would have gone to for solace and advice um, are gone, you know, and... Yeah, so all of this, they were all meshed up, do you know what I mean? So it's grief, complex grief and having to deal with body issues and flashbacks and nightmares. And so it was a mess. It was an absolute mess. And I kind of tossed this coin in my head and I said, you make a choice here now. You either end it or you give it one last try, but find the help to do so. So I, I went to the therapist. I went to um, Dr. Colin James's. And at that moment, that was how crucial that decision was. I was either going to stay or I was going to go and we're all dependent on God help her if she didn't do that's what I was thinking on that day. But whether or not this woman could save my life. And then and then I did care. A lot. A lot care. <laughs> yeah, of course. Which I'd like to say worked rather marvelously. So uh, you know I'm I'm very much an advocate for therapy. <laughs> it's one of those things, though, because like you said, you were kind of at a crossroads there between living this life of pain and anguish and PTSD, you know, and for a lot of people they would have said, you know, I just want to end it. I can't go through this anymore because I've, I, it, the grief is too complex. It's too deep. So, you know, you obviously made the braver decision then to carry on and because you you're still going to put yourself through that. But it's. A really nobody can ever imagine unless they've gone through any of that. As you said, I know in your book, you felt like you lost part of your identity. You, you lost your life. You lost your femininity. And you're, you're literally starting all over again, but having to repair your broken body and your broken mind. And sometimes it can seem like it's not worth fighting for. So like you really had to reach and reach and reach and get out of that situation, didn't you? Absolutely. And, you know, guilt plays a part in that moment as well. And, and in this case, on a, <laughs> on a positive level, because so many people have been rebuilding my body. You know, I, I had had the most phenomenal level of care in the Matera and in St. James's, where I had amazing teams of surgeons and doctors and nurses do everything to save my life. And if I'm going to be really honest, that's probably the, the thing that actually stopped me from ending it that, that, that Christmas. Because I thought to myself, well, all these people who've put so much into keeping me going. And this is what you do then, you know, when things get too hard. So, you know, um, that was a, a defining factor, I think, in, in seeking out the therapy. Um, but you know, I, I have to say that was, yeah, I mean, that was, I've, I've spoken a lot about, um, I'd, I'd like to think of myself as an advocate for, for seeking out therapy. 
and, and mental health assistance when, when things got too tough. And it was very intense, you know, and I went through two years of intense therapy. And we're not talking about sitting there for half an hour. You know, some of those sessions could be three or four hours long. Um, and, you know, it was, it was phenomenal, phenomenal care and attention that went to my, my mental health. And, and CBT is a phenomenal uh, form of cognitive behavioral therapy because it actually you can you can see very quickly how how it can work. It's it's almost like a brain training. People train, you know, to do a marathon or they they, they train to upskill and work. How often do we train our brains to change our thought processes? And I could see the results. You know, within a couple of months I could see the difference in performing the CBT exercises that that I was given. I, I, it, yeah, it made a phenomenal difference. Um, I know I know. currently in Ireland, I don't know what it's, it, it's like over in Alicante in Spain, but I know in Ireland at the moment, it's um, there is a bit of a crisis. People are, are desperately trying to access therapy. It's not so easy. We don't seem to have a, an, enough therapists available for the mental health crisis that seems to be bubbling under the surface here. Uh, certainly from conversations I've been having recently, particularly with a lot of parents with, with teenage children. Um, but if you can find it and you can find the right therapist, my God, it's, it's, it's the greatest gift you can ever give yourself. And anyway, isn't it lovely to be able to talk about yourself for an hour? <laughs> Uninterrupted. <laughs> yeah, of course. Well, I mean, you know, if you talk about yourself in front of your friends, they're like, come on, you know. Uh, woe is me stop talking but but when you're with the therapist they're there to listen and they want you to break down those things that are going on in your head and say why do you feel like this so i mean it's great yeah we, because that's part of it isn't it we sometimes feel like if we talk about ourselves too much we're being you know a little our ego is too big or we're be, being a bit narcissistic and our and we're being indulgent indulgent yeah and the thing is but with the therapist it's a different feeling because you know you have to say to yourself well at times i feel like this and then you say oh well maybe i should stop doing that or you know maybe i am a bitch or maybe i am a bastard in the way i treat people so the therapy is great for that because it shows you who you really are and it shows you how you need to change but it also shows you the things that are holding you back and it shows you you know how you can progress. And just a question on the, the CBT, that, that process. Yeah, crucially, just on that point, it also gives you the tools. You see, sometimes you can be very aware of your own failings, so you can be very aware of your own problems, but you're like in a paper bag and you don't know how to fight your way out of it. So if you get the right therapeutic assistance, they will give you the tools that you can apply to your life. Um, in my case, for instance, I, I sort of uh, look at my brain like a filing cabinet. So with the flashbacks, for, as a good example. So the flashbacks could be very, very realistic. I could be walking in the park or I could be sitting in my living room and then all of a sudden I'm right back there in the boot of a burning car on the coast of Matty fighting for my life. And the triggers were many and various at that early stage and it was just horrific and it was so realistic um that I, I can't describe to you how realistic i mean the brain is a very cruel thing sometimes it can really fool you into believing that you're somewhere entirely different but with the filing cabinet i suppose that's how i describe its system of cbt what i managed to do was 
refile. What was happening was that event was replaying over and over again in the present day when it should have been at the back of the cabinet filed under July 23rd, 2018. And for some reason, my brain right, right, replaying it like a little movie constantly on replay. So um, through CBT, I, I was able to train that file. It doesn't mean, by the way, the event disappears. It doesn't mean that I won't forget every minor, minute detail of what happened that day. I will never forget anything that happened that day, sadly. And I mean, it's, it's still, you know, those events revisit me at nighttime in my dreams or night, every night, pretty much. But at least during the day, I can cope. And it's filed back where it should be now, at the back of the filing cabinet. So things like that. I would not no have known how to do that without the, the clinical care of an expert in her field. Um, I wouldn't have been able to get to that place, I don't believe, by myself. Okay, yeah, and that that's great. I mean, I'm really glad that you were able to find that path because many others have some situations not as similar, but even, you know, less tragic and not being able to get through it. So well done on doing that. And I'm glad you found the help and I'm glad you're here to tell us about that story today. What I want to ask you as well, when you made the decision to write the book and put it down on paper and tell everyone your what was going on in your life and all of the things that had happened and how you were dealing with it. Was that something that you felt was part of the process of grieving or part of the process of therapy? Well, actually, I commenced that before therapy. So I, I really did start writing. Um, and, I, you know, as soon as okay. I left the hospital. Um, now, I had very little use of my left hand at the time. but um, So I was a... <laughs> a two-fingered typist, basically, for a considerable period of time. But uh, for me, I always, uh, well, I always found writing therapeutic anyway from a very young age. So I always kept journals and diaries. So whenever I had a problem, that's how I would work things out. So this was a very natural way for me to process everything. But somewhere down the line, within a, you know, a month or two, I started to realize, my goodness, there's a real story unfolding here. And some of the things that happened during that period of time from the the fire to well present day now, but you know, in that in that period of, of initial stages of recovery were remarkable. You know, it was remarkable that I was still there. I mean, I was, you know, I should have died on more than one occasion. And I met some phenomenal individuals. And strangely enough, in a kind of macabre way, there were some very funny things that also happened, you know, during the hospital. I know that sounds kind of inappropriate, but that's life. You mentioned earlier that, you know, there's always laughter at a funeral, you know, there's a, in, in that way, even at the darkest of times, funny things can occur. So there was, you know, I, I started to realize that there was quite a, uh, an interesting tale to tell here. And, and yeah, I suppose I didn't, you know, I, at the back of my head, I wanted to write about Brian. I wanted to tell the world as well about my, my father and, and about all the wonderful people and, and what they've done for me. Um, I'm not sure whether I thought it was going to be a book. But very quickly, it, it, it appeared that it was going to be, you know, as, as, as I went through it. Now, the initial book, by the way, uh, as the smoke clears, it's the name of the book. The initial book, it was a tone of this. I mean, it was ludicrous, you know, it contained unnecessary detail. Um, but when I finally whittled it down to its, its, its final version, uh, I, think it, I think it told the story of that particular year rather well. And I just, yeah, I was very pleased with it. 
Fabulous book. And it's a hard story to tell. And it's a hard story to go through again for you, because obviously you're putting this all down on paper and then you're going through it in therapy. So it's a, it's a kind of repetitive process, which is, you know, heart wrenching and it's, it's hard on you and hard on your mental health and everything. But as I mentioned earlier, those struggles of putting that down on paper are helping other people and you're giving other people inspiration to be able to get through their battles. So I think it's a wonderful thing what you've done. And I think anytime somebody writes a book or a journal about their, their life and the tragedies and everything that happened, it will always help somebody. And, you know, if you don't want to read that sort of thing, you just don't read it. But for the people that do, it's great. I mean, they can say, oh, wow, I, I was so inspired by this person's story and it gave me the strength to carry on. And if you can help one or two people, that book was worth it every time. I agree. Thank you, by the way. Um, but I, I, I really do agree. And what surprised me was very quickly, shortly after the, the book was published, uh, the letters and, and the messages started to come in. And boy, did they come in. And I really... I wasn't sure if my story was going to resonate with so many people. But, you know, the thing is, pain is pain. Grief is grief. Illness is illness. And, you know, it's not a competition. <laughs> you know, a lot of people may not have experienced this level, with this level of, of tragedy or pain, but they've experienced something in their life. And, and you know, I, I, was, I was amazed how many people wanted to talk about. And, by the way, very honored that people wanted to talk about their journeys as well because there's something to be treasured in that when a total stranger contacts you and says you know can i tell you about what happened to me and they just let it all out and they see there's a comfort because you are a stranger you know but they'll, they'll, they'll sh and i think there's something to be really you know treasured about that interaction and i'm always i am though i am a very curious person by nature I've discovered over the last four years that I'm tired of it. I want to know about everyone's story. So I would very much welcome these things. <laughs> then I'd open up the conversation. Then I realized it's four o'clock in the morning and I really have to go to sleep and stop talking <laughs> with these strangers. But, but the book opened up all yeah. of those to me. Yes. And it's amazing, though, because sometimes there are things we don't want to talk about we want to keep them hidden. But then you talk to the right person and you make that connection and they tell you their, their story. Or even if they don't, even if you feel you can trust them and they're a stranger and they can listen to you. I mean, sometimes you just have to go with it. And it's nice to hear people's stories, whether they be bad or good. And it's nice to hear how they've done these things in their life. And, you know, that's a lot of the inspiration behind this podcast is it doesn't matter if I'm talking to you or a musician or an actor or a sports person. It's the things that drive them that have pushed them on, whether it be, you know, tragedy or, you know, humor or whatever. And it's great to share these stories. And doesn't everybody have a right to voice their stories? Everybody has something worthy to share. I genuinely believe that. And like you said, it doesn't have to be something that's born of sadness or, or of tragedy. Um, it can be, you know, everybody has different types, different types of struggles. But I, I do think there's something, if, if there's one thing in particular that I, I really uh, rejoice about writing this book is that are those communications that occurred thereafter. And they, 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 they came in, as I said, you know, in quite considerable volume, but also they, they, those conversations sort of developed organically. I touch base with people still, uh, quite frequently on social media, you know, that, uh, 
I feel like our well, they're strangers, but they're friends, you know. And I, you know, I'm, I'm chatting to one widow who recently, you know, rejoiced in the fact that she, um, actually, I better not say that. She's basically found uh, herself a new little bit of eye candy, or little, you know. But I mean, you know, these are the conversations. Two total strangers, and we're yapping away, and she's saying, "Well, listen, wait until you hear my news." Well. And she's excited to relate. Of course, this. And, of course. You know, but that's, of course. that's fantastic. It's, you know, that's her way of saying, I'm doing better than I was a year ago. And boy, is she doing better by the sounds of things. But... <laughs> <laughs> it's, good, it's good eye candy. No, and that's the process, isn't it? Because, you know, we always, ima- we always imagine when we lose someone that there can never be anybody else. But you never know. Nobody knows. And the thing about it is, it's great that that woman was her happiness was telling you I've met somebody. This is a part of my life that I thought would never happen. Or it's a healing process, but it's happening. And you know what? In as much as initially people were sharing their pain, sometimes they share their healing and their joy too. And that's that's opened up a whole channel of communication for me that I I I really really enjoy and I treasure. That's great. And I'm curious, you know. When you had gone through all the therapy and you're, you know, you were, I know you'll never finish the healing process, but when your body had healed more and I know you're still undergoing, you know, surgeries and it's an everyday process, but when you decided obviously to revisit the whole scene, not not the the scene of where it happened essentially, but to see those people, to meet that Manos, you know, of that. Tell me about that process, like how you decided you were going to meet them and was it something that came about by accident or you thought, I, I want to go and see them? Well, no, I haven't physically met Manus since then. So uh, we communicate, we write to each other, we communicate um, on social media. Um, I did go back to Greece very briefly for a court hearing, but because it was such a, a, a brief uh, just before COVID hit, because it was such a brief visit, uh, I didn't get a chance to go back and even, you know, and meet people in the hospital. Um, but I communicate with them all. Um, Mr. Mutalis, in particular, the surgeon who, you know, oh, yeah, he, that man was just the most compassionate enemy on the planet. Uh, you know, so I've, I've uh, we, we write to each other. Um, you know, there, there's a phenomenal emotional connect with people who've saved your life. And you can't just let that go. Uh, I was in James's, I was in St. James's only a couple of days ago um, with Mr. Shelley, um, the, the other surgeon, the surgeon who rebuilt my hand and rebuilt my legs, basically, and gave me back my life. He saved my life, in fact, from, from um, the, the sepsis. But, um, you know, it's, there, there is this huge emotional connection. There's also a need to give back. So I'm working out ways now where I can currently give back to these people. My initial way was, you know, to talk about them in the book, but there are lots of other opportunities there to do so. And I will be going back to Greece, um, potentially this year. I can't go into any detail on it because there is a court case ongoing. Um, and unfortunately, uh, yeah, I've been told, as you can imagine, it's not easy for me to... Okay, to okay, no problem. <laughs> Mouth zipped once I get going, but basically I, I have to be cautious about what I say here. Um, but there's a large group, group suit ongoing regarding certain uh, officials that made some rather diabolical decisions on that particular day on July 23rd, 2018. So that court case will be will be happening and I will be going over and I will be giving testimony once more. And, uh, and I fully intend on that occasion 
to see not only Manus, but obviously get into the Matera and see all those amazing people. Um, that really saved my life in the initial stages. So I'm not, I, it's a strange thing to say. I'm actually looking forward to going back. Now, that's how I feel right now. It might feel very differently when I get over there, but I'm excited to see those people. And basically show them, you know, the legs work, the arms work, you know, the eyes are still wide open. They don't see as well as they used to, but they're still wide open, you know, and uh, yeah, show them that it was worth their while. Great that those people did help you and it will be nice. And I know it will be emotional and it will be very hard to revisit you know, Greece and to with all the memories and everything. But it, on the other hand, it will also be a very positive thing to see those people and meet them again and, and to see the great work they're still doing. And, you know, I'm going to let you go in a sec, but I want to just obviously speak about the work you're doing now more and more. And in your public speaking and, and you know, with your writing and everything, you're obviously you're helping lots of people. So when you go to an event, when you have a public speaking event and you speak to the people, do you do you find that lots of people actually want to speak to you personally after you've spoken? Yes. And in fact, I always welcome questions and answers. Sometimes, you know, time runs on and you don't often get as much time as you'd like. Um, but um, yes, I always enjoy talking to people after. You know, and particularly now, because we've, we've gone through such a period of isolation, you know, as delightful as I find myself, God, I'm bold with my own company, so, and I live alone, so there's nothing better, there's nothing better than getting yeah. out to an event and talking to a load of people. Yeah. And by the way, what I said earlier is really true. There's always somebody in the audience who wouldn't have known Brian. You know, just the other day at the event in Croke Park, this woman came up to me and she had a photo of Brian on her phone. And she said, you won't remember me. We might have met once before. Brian was studying for a PhD in college. And um, and she has her story to share. And they're just beautiful little gifts. You know, they're beautiful gifts. And, and um, yes, so I, I always, I always enjoy talking. And I always find the question and answer sessions very interesting because then, you, you know, you, you truly get to understand what, what uh, people are curious about. And often they'll have their own issues that they'll want to talk about. And that's it's much more engaging when we have a two-way process. You know what I mean? So I, I, I really like that too. And obviously, obviously, I'm also writing at the moment for the Irish Independent. Um, I'm doing a, a column, of, a monthly diary, uh, which I am thoroughly enjoying i have to say and i'm getting great feedback on that too so um we'll see where that where that goes who knows and you know as i said earlier i want to commend you first of all for you know being an amazing person to get through all of this and for having the strength to do what a lot of people could not have done and it's an amazing story it's a heart-wrenching story and it, of course very tragic but when on the flip side of it then there's a lot of positives and it's great to hear you laughing and it's great to hear you kind of being able to smile after all the things that have happened to you but what's even better is to hear that positivity in your voice and to hear you know, how you're so enthusiastic about helping all these other people and how you love what you're doing now. And, you know, it's put you on a different path, maybe. So now maybe you're doing what you're meant to be doing. So there's always a positive outcome sometimes from these negative incidences. You know, I want to thank you for coming on the show. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you for sharing your story. You know, I know it was 
pretty sensitive and it's hard to talk about it, but thank you for taking that time. And I've really enjoyed talking to you, you know? Well, thank you, Simon. And I really do appreciate that. And, uh, and you are right. You know, we have to find the chinks of light, you know, in life. And I've been offered little gifts along the way in recovery. So I am embracing those moments now as best as I can. Uh, but I, I really appreciate meeting you here today. And it's been a very interesting chat from my perspective, too. I hope you enjoyed it. Thank you. Really nice. So thank you very much, Zoe. And we wish you the best of luck with all your future projects. And we'd love to have you on the show again some other time. You know, you're always welcome here. And uh, we'll keep following your your articles and future books, probably. And best of luck when you do go back to Greece. And best of luck with all your future endeavors. Zoe Holohan, everybody. Thank you. Bye-bye. Okay, Zoe, thank you very much for sharing your story. Such an amazing story and, you know, so heart-wrenching and terrible thing to have happened to both of you and especially after such a happy time in your wedding day. We want to commend you for being so brave and telling your story. The book is fantastic. You know, you've done so much since then and, you know, I know you're still rebuilding your life, but you're actually helping other people now as well, which is a great thing. We want to thank you for taking the time to come on the show and we hope the listeners enjoy this. We'll dedicate this show to Brian. So thank you very much, Zoe. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Okay, everybody, we hope you enjoyed the show. We will have a few more guests on. We're getting close to the end of the season two, but we promise to have a great season three coming up soon as well. So as I said before, please follow, like, and subscribe where you see those buttons. And please share this podcast with whoever you think might have an interest in it. We have all types of guests and we have all types of listeners. So we appreciate you being here. Until the next time, my name is Simon Kay. This is the Collective Whisper podcast. Look after yourself and your family. Take care. Bye-bye.